Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. If you're visiting, we're glad that you are with us. Our text to speak from this morning is Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. 16, 13 to 18. And the Word of God reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And that ends the reading of the Word of God. Let us pray once again. Father, we continue in your presence. We never leave your presence. But we are committing ourselves to you as we open the Scriptures to explain them. And as we follow the instructions that you left in your Holy Scriptures when we gather together to read and to preach the Word and to do it in season and out of season. But for these things, Father, who is sufficient? We pray for your Holy Spirit who inspired and revealed the Scriptures to give illumination to our minds and also to make the Scriptures effectual as we hear them. And we pray not only for ourselves, but we pray for all of those who gather in the name of Christ to proclaim the truth to proclaim the gospel. In this your day, we ask, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, may your name be exalted. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've heard the phrase, perception is reality. And sometimes there's a perception about us that we cannot change. Tip. When your boss calls you to say that you did something wrong, apologize, ask, what can I do to improve it, and move on. Normally, your excuses and explanations will not change the perception, but your actions after the event may change them, because perception is reality, even though many times perception can be far from reality. Now, interesting that the closer the perception we project to the reality of who we are says that we are less hypocritical. The more hypocritical we are, people will perceive us as we are not a very different picture of who and what we really are when nobody's watching. In this case, we have a passage that starts with a perception, Jesus asking a question about a perception, 
who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That perception or that question drew a confession from Peter about the reality of who Jesus was. And from that confession, we have a proclamation. Jesus says, upon that rock, I will build my church. Now, when does this happen? This happened at a time that the text says Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was in, in the north region, close to Syria, not too far from Capernaum and Galilee, where Jesus' ministry started. Jesus lived in Capernaum. He moved around the region of Galilee. And in Capernaum, there was a toll gate. And it's not an electronic toll gate that the one we have today, bill by plate or toll by plate. You had to stop, be inspected, and pay customs according to the type of merchandise you would be bringing in and out, going so south or north. And many of those merchants would hear about this individual who was in Capernaum preaching, doing miracles, doing things, and they would bring their reports about Jesus to the places they would go. That was why Jesus settled himself in Capernaum. It was a good place to spread out his ministry by word of mouth. And now close to the border of, Re of Syria, he is with the disciples and he asks them, what do people say about me? Now, why did Jesus ask that from the disciples? It was a method of teaching. You will not know what people are thinking unless you quiz them. I know there is a theory about, well, examinations and tests are not the best way to gauge knowledge because some people do not know how to take tests, and that may be true. But you will only know how well you're doing on something if you are quizzed about it and you yourself can assess and your professors how much have you learned. In this case, Jesus asks a rather difficult question. What do people say about me? I would not want to know what do people say about me. Maybe very few would say a couple of nice, condescending, merciful things about me. But if I really probe, I'll hear a lot of things that I may not be willing to hear and admit. Now, I submit to you that perhaps that is the case with you too. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes that I try to remember frequently. Solomon says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant speaking evil of you, cursing you. And if you do, remember, you've done the same. So when you hear somebody gossiping or saying something negative about you, before jumping up in arms to defend yourself, just remember you've done it too. Because that's the nature of gossip. Now a little warning. If you have those friends at the office or in school or in the neighborhood or those relatives that like to come to you and call you with the latest gossip, warning, they do exactly the same about you with others. Don't trust them. Stay away from those. Gossip never leads to anything good. Even in church, it's just for you to pray for them. Don't tell me to pray for anybody. Just pray yourself. 
and let the Lord deal with that person. I don't need to know the bad things about a person to pray for them. Now, this was a teaching opportunity. Why? Because Jesus knew exactly what people thought about him. The Gospels tell that. In fact, John writes, he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus didn't need to go around poking. Hey, what do you think about me? Uh, survey. Let's find out how we're doing. He knew exactly what was in the heart of people. He knew what his enemies were caviling or caviling, thinking, planning, plotting against him and his teaching. And perhaps the most dramatic thing about this question is that Jesus knew the disciples were lost. That first time you explained algebra to someone, if you're a teacher or you're a parent or a tutor, and you're there with all your equations on the board, and you're doing things, and you see those eyes wide open. What on planet Earth is this? And you know your students are lost. Sometimes happens in church. I'm saying things, and I see your eyes, and this is, oh my, I'm in Pluto right now. I need to come back somehow to Earth. That happens. Jesus knew his disciples were lost. I'm not making that up. The very last night of his ministry, sometimes pastors and teachers and those who labor get discouraged because people do not progress. Okay, the very last night in Je Jesus' ministry, after all he did during three years and a half, Peter, um, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough. And Jesus says, dude, I've been with you three years and a half doing miracles and doing all kinds of things, and you're asking me for that? Yes. Disciples were lost after the miracle of the multiplication of bread and fish. Mark 6.52 reports that the disciples did not understand about the loaves or the fish because their hearts were hardened. Even after the resurrection, in the Mount of Ascension, Matthew makes this remark about the disciples. Some were doubtful. So when you feel doubtful, when you feel lost, when you wonder, is this really true? Remember, there's a whole bunch in your kind that was right there with Jesus after the resurrection when he was ready to be taken up to heaven. And they were still wondering, is this really true? That happens because the disciples did not understand the gospel, the message, the purpose, the kingdom, Jesus' ministry only after the resurrection when the Holy Spirit came to them. So they tell Jesus the rumors. And remember, it's a teaching opportunity. Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now it is fascinating to consider the rumors. Why? Because those rumors tell something about how Jesus was perceived. When they said John the Baptist, they connected John's uncompromising call to repentance to Jesus, because Jesus' preaching involved calling people to repent. When they said Elijah, they connected Jesus' power over nature to Elijah's. Elijah raised the widow's son in Sarephtah of Sidon. So did Jesus with the widow of Nain and others. Elijah extended the flower 
and the oil that it would not deplete, Jesus multiplied bread and fish twice. So they connected. Elijah made fire come from heaven. Jesus calmed the sea. So they connected this man who preached powerfully and had power over nature with the prophet Elijah. Others said, no, he's Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the stern preacher, the serious man who called, who called people to repentance in light of the coming of the day of the Lord. And Jesus preached also repentance and the reality of eternity and hell and heaven. But Jeremiah was a broken, weeping prophet. And Jesus was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So they connected all of these characters with Jesus. And even though they didn't hit the mark, to me it's fascinating the statement about how they perceived him. On the one hand, it teaches the Christotelic element of the Old Testament. Everything you read in the Old Testament is not a nice story to teach morals to children in Sunday school. What you read in the Old Testament is the unfolding and the unveiling of the history of redemption in Christ. And all of these types of Christ and symbols of Christ and messages of Christ are all over the Old Testament. Not in just some spread out passages everywhere because that's the point of the book. But it also tells something about how Jesus influenced his generation. We are influencers, all of us. Oh, we may not be, be viral. We may not be celebrities in social media and well-known influencers for things, but we are influencers at home, at school, church, work. Wherever we move, whatever we do, we influence somehow, some way. And Jesus was an influencer. People perceived him as a man of God. They were wrong, but they were right. And perhaps we should wonder, and how do people perceive us? Even if they are wrong, hopefully it's a holy, righteous influencing, even as that Jesus had. But then he moves the teaching to the disciples and says, okay, what about you guys? Who do you think I am? That's what they say, got it. And I imagine, it's not in the text, that there was this silence. What do we say? This is a test. It's when the, when the teacher says, do you guys see it? Who can see what I'm writing in the, on the blackboard or on the presentation? And you're like, oh, what should I say? What do you guys say I am? And Peter erupts the scene. You are the Christ the Son of the living God. That is an amazing statement. You are the anointed. You are Silo, the one promised to, the one Jacob promised to Judah. You are the one that we are expecting. You are that prophet, priest, and king who would restore Israel, who would bring salvation from the Lord. You are that one whom we will cry as the psalmist writes, Hosanna, in the highest. Save us, O God, we pray to you. You are the Savior. You are the King. You are the Son of God. You are the Revealer of God. All of that theology packed in you are the Christ. We could preach a whole year and more about Peter's phrase. And Jesus says to Peter, Blessed you are. 
son of Jonah. You are a blessed man because you have the right theology. And it is blessed to have the right theology. But the blessing was not in the content, was in the source of his theology. Because this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. It's not that you went to seminary and learned. It is that my Father in heaven showed you and told you who am I. And for that, you're blessed. It brings a theological conclusion. By the way, it is impossible to make this confession about Jesus without divine intervention. So, but there's a lot of unbelievers who say that about Christ. Yes, you can say that about Christ. You can know theology without knowing the Lord because theology is an intellectual apprehension. You can learn it historically. But to confess it, believing it, to confess it on your knees, weeping, and telling the Lord, whom shall I go to? Only you have words of eternal life. You are the Son of God. You are my portion. You are my Savior. On that day I have no other hope than you standing by me washing my sins. To say that and to affirm it and to believe it and to live for it requires divine intervention. That is not a decision of the flesh. Oh, one day I decided. <laughs> I decided to follow Jesus <laughs> because back way when... <laughs> He chose me to follow him. And Peter's confession is actually that rock of the church. Because Jesus says, Peter, you've said it right. And upon that rock, I will build my church. And I know there's a lot of debate. Oh, no, the rock is Peter. And then all of those bishops of Rome. And then the Pope. And that's the rock of the church. No. Because math, we read it in Luke. Luke tells of that parable in which Jesus appears as the chief cornerstone. Peter said in his letter, Jesus is the rock. Paul said in his letters, Jesus is the rock. Jesus himself said of him that he was that rock. So Jesus is the rock. And in this context, that declaration of Jesus the anointed, Jesus the Christ, being the Son of God, the Savior, that is the rock and foundation of the church. It is a person, but it is a person with a title and with a mission. Jesus is the rock as the Christ and the Son of the living God. And in that, he gives this twofold promise. Upon that rock, I will build my church. Victor and Freddie asked me in the praying room, what are you preaching today? And I said, oh, that I will build my church. And they said, what? No, no, not me. It's Jesus, the one who's building the church. But he, it, is, it is he who says, I will build my church. And I would like to spend the remainder of our time in that promise. What is the meaning of that statement? We read it fast. We go into arguing about who's the rock too fast and miss the point of the passage. The passage is, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail, will not overpower it. Jesus is the builder, goes without saying, right? I will build. What builds the church? Jesus. Who builds the church? Jesus. Not programs, 
Many years ago, we were introduced to the subject of the trellis and the vine. And that teaching, that statement about ministries. I love to see the pictures that Freddie sent the other day about the youth group. A lot of young guys meeting together to read scripture and study it and learn it. And then seeing some of your faces here this morning. I love it. Yes, we have a youth ministry. And we also have children's Sunday school. And we also have men's meetings. And we also have women's meetings. And I don't know what else we have. We have all kinds of things. Awesome. That's not what builds a church. Jesus builds the church. If ministries are not geared to make disciples and build them, it's just a program. It's just entertainment. We don't have anything to offer. If you're visiting us, if you're finding out, what are we about? We're about teaching the Bible, preaching the gospel, and making disciples. And if you're already a disciple, then making those disciples grow into the stature and image of Christ, that they may grow in grace and in the knowledge of their Savior. That's our business. That's our agenda. That's what we aim at. Nothing else. Because Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, that doesn't remove that we have to be enterprising in doing that and creative. A friend of mine brought a, an astronaut. He said, what? Yes, he brought an astronaut to his church. A guy who was a commander at the space station. He happens to be a believer. And they spend a weekend with this commander of the space station teaching about faith and science because he's a believer. That's awesome. That's great. They are enterprising for the gospel. Next week, they're having all the candidates for the mayor in their side of town, and they will debate in their church building and are inviting the people to come to the church building to hear the debates, and the questions will come from a pastor and questions that will be built on the ethics of the New Testament. Why? Because they are enterprising for the kingdom and for making disciples and for doing creative things to attract people to Christ, not to their church. That doesn't remove the fact of being enterprising. Some Christians pray for rain. It's like the farmer who prays for rain from his rocking chair. Lord, send us rain so that we may have a harvest. And other Christians are like the farmer who in the middle of the drought goes out with his seeds and his uh, devices, his machinery, plows the ground, plants the seed, and as he is plowing and planting, says, Lord, please bless this. I'm afraid that some of us are like the guy sitting in the rocking chair, praying for revival and doing nothing. No, the spirit of being enterprising for Christ is not removed by that reality. On the contrary, it is enhanced. Because Jesus will build his church, I will be creative in proclaiming, preaching, teaching, building disciples in their most holy faith. Secondly, Jesus is the owner. He says, it's my church. The church belongs to Jesus. The church doesn't belong to Pastor Freddie, Pastor Mario, who is sick today, by the way, please pray for him, and Pastor Darren. They're not the owners of the church. Victor, who handles the finances and is one of our deacons, is not the owner of the church. And nobody of those who serve here owns the church. The church is Jesus. And I've been in this place, it's going to be my 34th year this year, and I've seen pastors come and go. And I've seen people come and go. And the place remains because it will remain as long as Jesus wants it to remain. 
And we have gone through crises that would have destroyed to smitherings any church. And this one remains standing because Jesus is not yet. I'll decide when it falls. Because it's his church, not any person's church. Christ sets the rule, the rules. In the New Testament, it is called the church of Christ, or the church of God, or the churches of God, or the assemblies of God. They are his church, or part of his church, those local churches. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul told Timothy, I'm writing this letter to you because I may tarry as I come to you. But I'm tarrying, I'm writing so that you may conduct yourself properly in the church of God, which is the household of God, which is the pillar and grounds for the truth. Here are the rules to do church according to what God commands church must be done. It is not according to the creativity or enterprising spirit of the pastors and leaders. He came for his church. He bled for his church. He lives for his church. He nourishes his church. It is his church. He's the builder. He's the owner. Thirdly, Jesus is the one who fights for his church. That's why the text says, the gates of Hades will not prevail. Jesus takes care of the outcome. That is the most comforting truth about church. Jesus is the protector. Remember when Saul of Tarsus had letters with authority to imprison and even send Christians to death? And Jesus meets him on the road of Damascus or to Damascus? What was the question Jesus asked? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Paul was not persecuting Jesus. Jesus was already in heaven. Jesus had already ascended. He was persecuting Christians. Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He is the one who fights the battles of the church. You know what is the premise of the Great Commission? Go, therefore, preach the gospel and make disciples from every nation. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always. Do you know what is a premise of that? Sometimes we don't read it. And that's where it starts. Jesus says, all authority, all, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, preach and make disciples. That is the basis. That is the premise. Because Jesus is the fighter and he has all authority. We go out and preach and proclaim and do whatever it takes. Because the authority lies with him. No one else. And whether you take the Great Commission as an imperative, go therefore preach. Or as an indicative. Therefore, as you go preach, it doesn't matter how you want to conjugate the mode of the verb. It could go either way if you go by the Greek ending. It's still the same teaching because Jesus has the authority. We preach and proclaim and make disciples. In the words of Anna Wiley Tabithy that I've question, mentioned before, why do Calvinists evangelize? You guys believe that God is sovereign. Yes, we do. You guys believe that God chooses according to the, to the 
pure intention of his will? Yes, we do. You believe that Jesus came to die for his people? Yes, we do. You believe that saints will persevere to the end and nothing will separate it from the hands of Jesus? Yes, we do. You believe that it is all of God? Yes, we do. You believe that the only thing men put is sin? Yes, we do. The only contribution we make on this deal is sin. Why do you preach? And a wily Tabitha says, because you have guaranteed success, dude. The number is there. The people are called, chosen. Therefore, you will succeed. Only one product, and my company has it. Komatsu builds the largest wheel loader on planet Earth. Nobody builds one like it. Not even the Chinese. So when a customer says, hey, I need to have this giant wheel loader, 50 cubic meter bucket. Guess what? <laughs> the only product is with Komatsu. Guaranteed success. There's no competition. That's exactly what happens with the gospel. You preach it on Jesus' authority. My delight, as I see younger Christians, is precisely that. Feisty, know-it-all, the syndrome of the young theologian, all of that is true. But they are there. If not, the gospel would have died with our forefathers. But it keeps going. We don't have to be alive for things to be happening. It is a great comfort that God takes care of his business. He doesn't need anyone. So you see the younger generation rising with a baton of the gospel to the next generation because that is the way Jesus, the builder, the fighter, the owner of the church, designed it. Now, what does that mean? How does that translate to us? What's the conclusion to this? What? Okay, great, thanks. <laughs> well, there are some practical things that stem from it, and I want to use the last 10 minutes for that, or 15 minutes, whatever I have left. Jesus didn't promise to build anything else but his church. Many years ago, we used to have a radio ministry, and one of the guys told, oh, why don't, why don't we make a web page with the name of the person preaching, and we called it such and such ministry and, and the person who was preaching said, no, because Jesus didn't, didn't build that ministry. Jesus built the church. This is going to be Cornerstone Bible Church radio ministry. He built his church. He didn't build anything else. Jesus died for his church. That's what Ephesians 5.22 and following says. He died. He bled. He purchased his church. Not any ministry, seminary, uh, school, Christian school, Christian ministry, ONG, Christian ONG, none of that stuff. He died for his church. He came to save his people from their sins. The people of God is identified as the church. In the Old Testament, Israel. In the New Testament, the Israel of God. The same church. Those who are gathered and called of God by grace in Christ. There's no two people of God. There's only one. And the church is his son's bride. That's why the story of redemption, which is retold in Revelation. You want a trick for reading Revelation? No, not, don't go crazy. Imagine you're reading a summary of the Bible in a picture, in a painting. And that's what Revelation is about. It's a summary of redemption. You know how it ends? In a wedding. Why? Because the church, as Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, is the bride of Christ. So how does it end? I saw heaven. What did he see? 
a bride adorned for her husband. What, Paul, what John is describing is the church in glory, in a painting language, in pictorial language. Because that is what the deal is about, the church. Now I ask you, as Jesus asked his disciples to quiz them, I ask you, and you can answer in your minds. You don't have to answer me. Where is the church in your scale of values? You've, you heard the expression, oh, most valuable thing to me are my children. Okay? Most valuable thing to me is my job, my profession, my career. Whatever it is. Where is the church in your scale of values? Because if you ask Jesus, where is it? He would say, number one, I came to die for my church. What about your scale? Where is it? Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, I have this affliction. I have this source of grief. He said, the weight that is accumulating in my heart, in my bosom, this weight that when I wake up in the morning, I have it. What is it, Paul? What bothers you? Is it financial? Is it personal? Is it health? No, it is a concern for all of the churches. Now, we're not apostles. We're not called to oversee all of the churches in a region. But can we relate to that language? When we read 2 Corinthians 11.28, we say, well, I may not have to be worried about the churches in town, but I, I get what Paul meant because I feel that for my own local church. That's not Freddie's problem or Darren's problem or Maria's problem or Victor's problem. <laughs> That's our problem. Do we have that weight of concern? Second question. Very similar, perhaps it's just a repetition of the same concept, said it differently. Where's the church in your and my priorities? Because we know what is important to us based on what? Based on this, which I know nowadays isn't in the app, right? I get it. It's the app of finances, but what is based on that, I know what's important to me based on this, based on my time my agenda, my outlook calendar, it says what's a priority to me. Are we like a groom waiting for the bride? You're just waiting. When does she appear? When is she going to come? We're waiting for the wedding date. And that is your priority. That is what consumes you. What is your priority and mine? I'll tell you what is Jesus. The book ends in a wedding, and Jesus is waiting for his wedding day. What about us? Where's the church in our time and in our schedule? I'm just repeating the same question of value, scale, priorities. Okay, where does the church appear in our time and in our schedules? I'm going to tell a story. Let me make a point of clarification. I'm not telling the story so you admire me, because the story I'm going to tell is from back in the days when I was a legalistic, Pharisee, self-righteous, quasi-fanatical. 
And if somebody would come to me today and ask me, what should I do in this thing? I would, have, I would tell them not to do what I did. So are we clear that this is not about me? Okay, but I'll tell you the story anyway. Because I think it points to God. November of 1996, I have to go to Poland where we had a plant manufacturing products. My boss tells me, I, I want you to go with me. I was not in a traveling position back in the day. And Cornerstone had a Spanish ministry. And I had to preach every Sunday on the Spanish ministry. And I was a strict Sabbatarian person in those days. And I would keep Sundays as a Jew would keep the Sabbath. Kind of. That was my view. So my conscience was thrown into convulsion. I have a sermon to preach. And I'm going to be away from church on Sunday. So I'm telling you, I'm not saying this is right. But I go to my boss and say, Roger, you know that I, I have to preach in my church. And, uh, and I need to work on those sermons. And I work here, so I only do it at night. And we're going to spend the week in Poland. When I come back on Sunday, I have to preach. And, uh, and I do it in my computer at home. And also, I, I go to church on Sundays and and, and we're going to be traveling on Sunday. And this man, whom I hold dearly, said, no problem. He, let's call such and such. There was a deacon in our church named Nick Cowas. Let's call Nick and have him buy and have him get you a computer, a laptop, so that you can work on your sermon while you're there. And we were going to leave at 10 a.m. to the plant from Warsaw. I'm going to call the guy who's going to take us to go at 2 instead of 10, so you can find your church and go to church in Poland. Now, am I telling you, oh, look how faithful I am? No, I was a legalistic, self-righteous Pharisee, know-it-all, and an idiot. But do you know what I'm telling you about God? That He honored my ignorance in unbelief. He honored it. And some of you are afraid to let go, because, no, I need to do this first. And church goes here. No. Jesus died for his church. He died. And he lives for his church. It's not an afterthought for him. For some of us, first thing that gives is church. Tell me the truth. Car breaks down. And you have your $200 or 100 or 50 or $10 for the church. And car broke down. What gives? Your offerings? Am I saying give offerings because we're health and wealth prosperity? If there is any person who is on staff here who makes money, please stand up. If the pastors know about money in this church, please stand up. Only guy who knows about money in this church is Victor. He's not even here. We don't care about money. We don't care about your money either. We don't need your money. Nobody here lives out of money. But what is the first thing that gives? Is it church? Or is it something else? This is what we're talking about. I'm telling you, the text is going to meddle with us. I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Where do our emotions go? Where is church in our emotions? We're not the Apostle Paul. But are we concerned about the church? We have a business meeting next Sunday at 
Oh, but it's too early. You wake up at 6 to beat the turnpike traffic from Monday to Friday. Big deal. We have a business meeting at 9.30. Do we care about it? Or it's too complicated on Sundays for me to wake up. I'm just saying. Where is the church in our prayer priorities? Oh, I'm too busy praying for my children and for my life and for my finances and for my wife and for my husband and for me because this life is about me. Do we remember, church, in our praying? He's let your kingdom come, something that consumes us. Do we weep for God's glory when we see the blasphemy, when we see the debauchery, the, the disaster of our generation? Do we weep for God's glory? Do we weep for the influence of the church? Do we pray for those who still have a platform and can speak to our church at large? Men of God, you know who they are. Does that consume us? Where is the church? Final thing I'm going to say. Don't take it personal. But I learned a lot. I was telling friends the other day that I learned a lot about people by how they pray. When I hear somebody praying, saying, Daddy God, we pray. I said, oops. This guy really don't get it. He hasn't really exegeted Abba Father and the meaning of calling God Abba Father in the Spirit. When I hear people saying, well, I'm a Christian and I have my relationship with God, but I don't need the church. I don't believe in church. You've already said everything to me. We don't need to talk anymore. Why? Because of this passage. Then you haven't read Matthew 16. Jesus says, I will build my church. You haven't read, it. You haven't read Ephesians 5. Jesus bled for his church. Jesus lives to sanctify his church, to build it up, to nourish it, to present the church to himself, a glorious bride, a white bride that doesn't have spot or wrinkle. Jesus lives for that, unless I am reading another New Testament. And there is a new version that I'm too passe and I'm not getting it. When I observe church, church keepers, Church to church, church to church. That tells me a story. I'm sorry. Now, let me say something because we have visitors. And some of you are skipping churches right now because you're trying to decide where to stay. And I get it. I have, I have two adult children who spent like two years and a half to find a church. And they were skipping churches. So please don't feel that I'm condemning you for, for finding out where am I going to stay. But there comes a point that you have to find out where are you going to stay. Perhaps it'll take you two years and a half like my children. Perhaps it'll take you six months or five years. I don't know. But your lifestyle as a Christian cannot be church skipping. Because that also tells a story about where's the church in your priorities and in your values and in your scale. May the Lord help us and teach us to value the church and to grasp what it meant for Jesus, because Ephesians 3, 20, 21 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, at think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory 
in the church, in Christ Jesus, forever and ever. Amen. Father, bless your word and use it. May your word meet us where we are. Please, in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.